Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's show, we're heading off on a short, sharp global tour in which we're touching down in the worlds of film, art and music along the way. We'll land first in Toronto at the Hot Docs Film Festival, to be precise, to find out about a new documentary that examines the internal struggles of the creatives impacted by Hong Kong's harsh security law. Then, back here at the London Design Biennale, I meet the British-American artist and musician Beatty Wolf to discuss her intriguing new work titled Imprinting, as playful and imaginative a take on neurology as you're likely to get. And finally, we hear from the quite rightly exalted jazz musician Esperanza Spaulding on her vision for a future in which we can all find restoration in art and how she's making this happen in her native Portland, Oregon. The demonstrations in Hong Kong against the so-called security law imposed on the territory by Beijing in June 2020 were driven and chronicled in a notable way by the city's artists. Photographers, writers, musicians, graphic designers, visual and performance artists all joined the demonstrators and created work in real time that captured the upheaval and in many ways drove it forward. Hong Kong Mixtape is a new documentary by the filmmaker San San F. Young, which explores the role Hong Kong's artists played in that restive period, and what happened to many of those, like the performance artist Casey Wong, who appears in the documentary, who left the territory and sent themselves into self-imposed exile, and to those who stayed behind and went underground. Monocle's Thomas Lewis spoke to San San F. Young and Casey Wong for us during this year's Hot Docs Documentary Festival in Toronto, and sent us this report. You are my thing for dream. Hi, my name is San San F. Young. I'm the director and one of the producers of Hong Kong Mixtape. And Hong Kong Mixtape is a creative documentary centered around the politically engaged artistic landscape in Hong Kong and specifically what happens when a new law is brought in that makes freedom of expression incredibly difficult and dangerous, obviously. The scenes may look familiar, but for Hong Kong, it feels that so much more is now at stake. On Friday, Beijing unveiled plans to impose controversial national security laws on the city. Today, protesters gave their reply. We must stand up and fight and to let Beijing know that we will never surrender. I am from Hong Kong, and so I am as Hong Kong as they come. I'm from a family of storytellers, essentially. My, my grandfather was a newspaper editor, so we're sort of from that storytelling background. But of course, at the time, and this is just a juvenile misconception of mine, you assumed that the creativity was in Paris, in New York. And that's kind of what we were told. You were told if you were a creative person, you should be going to art school in New York, right? Yep. You should be going to, yeah, to explore, you know, where the real art was, because Hong Kong is obviously a banking center. It's a financial center. It's incredibly interesting if you're in business or property. We have incredible ties to all different Asian regions. So there's a lot of business to be done. But creatively, people were very downcast on what was going on there. But actually, I mean, we're becoming better at remembering the good work that's been done, but it's always had incredible creativity. And so one of the things that happened with the movement is it allowed a real 
collaborative collective atmosphere, which was actually really inspiring. If you love creativity, if you love arts, having a tunnel transform itself at 3 a.m. in the morning or having your friend, you know, do some tiny act in a studio somewhere and by the next day it's on the lips of every single person the next day. I mean, those, those small acts of creativity were just inspiring. That is really why it's called Hong Kong Mixtape, because there was this incredible mishmash of like great collaborative input from all kinds of different mediums, all kinds of different voices. And so that's obviously a great messy mix of, of wonderfulness. And, and, you know, the thing is, I mean, Casey would say this in some of his speeches before in the Umbrella Movement, one of the great sayings was everyone can contribute. I don't know if they're parallel or they're the same thing, but the idea of sort of how art evolves in a place where the climate has changed so much once the law comes in, but also the fact that this movement, the story of it was being told in real time through art in, in lots of ways. Obviously, artists were at the forefront of the movement. Like it was undeniable that not only were they helping get the word out, so if something was happening, that information would need to be relayed. So for instance, you had people doing kind of very information-based illustrations at certain points, or you had somebody who, yeah, would be relaying video pieces like very quickly overnight. But then you also had people like more artistically minded people who would then reflect on events and somehow crystallize that emotion and try and create some kind of longevity. And so some of the pieces have become focal points for the emotion of the movement. We're speaking today on a day where one of those focal points has been seized by the police. So today in Hong Kong, the Pillar of Shame, which is essentially a large statue, it features lots of different bodies. It's a huge piece. It, it was in Hong Kong for many years. And it just so happened that it became a gathering point for Tiananmen memorial ceremonies. And so that statue was removed in the dead of night. That sounds ridiculous that a piece of work is the target of authorities, but that's what happened. And so, for instance, I was just looking with Casey downstairs and we were looking at an artist's work who was making fun of this arrest of the statue. So the, the illustration by Va Wong Sir yeah. uh, is very humorous as well. Humorous, sad, it's, it's all of those things. But it shows the police trying to chip off bits of the statue and, and take them away in a car. And so that's just the incredible quick responsiveness, I suppose, of these artists. I think the song gathers people really nicely. For people who agree with peaceful ways to protest, I think by singing this song, they can really show people that their opinion towards the whole movement. I guess I become like an accidental political artist because Hong Kong was falling down so fast. And I care about Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong. I want to save it. So I thought I can save it with my art. So I'm the romantic type. And so I start doing um, artwork on the protest site, you know, cosplaying, playing different characters. Like one time I was dressing up like a Spartan. <laughs> so the other time I was dressing up like Moses to empower the people, to give them hope. At the same time, um, you know, relieve the, the pain a bit. You know, when everybody saw me, they laughed a little bit for a short time. Those are very good moments when you are struggling 
you cannot maintain your posture like forever, right? Because it's a, such a slow process. So I think art allows the humanity side, you know, like the complex emotion. I think the traditional media always only feature like Molotov cocktail, you know, things being burned and blood and all that. But besides all those, actually, we're human and we all have complex emotions and arts can deal with that no matter how particular it is. And so it become like some kind of time capsule and a very accurate, realistic time capsule. Like, for, for example, right now, I'm already like three years after the film, <laughs> three or four years. So I'm a different man in a way. But the film accurately recorded everything. So I appreciate that. And so when you watch the film sort of now, what was that like? Was oh, I, 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 what was that like? I, I have to take out my handkerchief. I was watching this guy. He looked like me and he's just so sad. And, but in the film, I smile a lot. And then I realized I was forcing it. You know, I have to deal with the internal pain by keeping up a big smile. Maybe you can't come back to Hong Kong. So do you, 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 you sure about that? You're going to publish this? I think it's important. Why should we be silenced? At the beginning of the film, you are speaking to an anonymous photographer. And the photographer, I think, says to you, are you going to broadcast this? Are you going to publish this? And you know that you won't be able to come back to Hong Kong, don't you? Have you been able to go back since making this, do you think... I mean, I would love to think that everybody can go back to Hong Kong, but I think it would be naive to not be aware. I mean, there, there's not really a logic to who they're coming after, which, again, makes it incredibly difficult to operate and also makes it incredibly difficult to, to try and judge your level of risk. Like, m my greatest wish was to be able to create something that had the ability to sort of be a boat for everyone to channel whatever they wanted to be so that you could platform not only the past work, because let's not forget some of the pieces that are in the film cannot be seen anymore. I mean, people were literally burning work, sending it on drives overseas. But not only that, is that people were constantly contributing and making new pieces. And if this film can be a vessel for people to also do that, then that is an incredible privilege for us in our film. I think this film is really, really meaningful, not to only Hong Kong, but to the rest of the artistic world. According to uh, Artists at Risk organization, there's a lot of artists globally right now being harassed by whatever regimes. I mean, they even have like death sentence issued to artists, torture and capturing them. And so it's really um, an example in terms of how you can use art to fight against tyranny and uh, political oppression, as well as having something more of a positive outlook. You know, although it sounds really sad and, and bad, but if you live through it, it sends a good message for everybody to learn from. Please make my dreams come true. Thanks to Thomas Lewis for that report. Mm -hmm. 
Now to the artist and musician Beattie Wolf, who's made a new work for the London Design Biennale, on for a month at Somerset House. Wolf's work has always delivered music in a way that excites more than the ears. Her art background has inspired her to collaborate with scientists, she's had her music beamed into space, and her work exists as happily in galleries as on stages. Her new work is called Imprinting, and it explores music, sound and memory in a beguiling installation of old telephones, primed to play conversations she's had with Nobel Prize collaborators, brand new music and an early cut from the very tender age of nine, all the way to teenage diary entries and intimate audio note-taking. In short, we're invited inside the artist's minds in all states of work, rest and play. All very nice, but this is also something of a sister project, Wolf's work for using music as a palliative for dementia. So we're invited to track each sensation to a bit of the brain. All very clever too, and deeply engaging. Here's Beatty Wolf and I at Somerset House. I die today and born in life. Beatty Wolf, it's wonderful to see you again. There has been some sort of hiatus between last time you were on this programme. I don't even know what, what edition of the programme that was many moons ago. That is not a technical measurement, is it? It's wonderful to have you and your voice and your wonderful ideas back on the programme. We are taking a trip inside your head with this new project at the London Design Biennale here at Somerset House. What were you trying to explore with this particular project? Well, thank you, Rob. It's wonderful to be here. It's my pleasure. Chatting with you again after so many years. I really wanted to explore our brains, as simple as it sounds. It's like it's my brain, but it's also about all of our brains. And the way we're not one thing or another. You know, often we think of ourselves as like, we're an artist or an engineer or, you know, it's from very early on education and socialization, we put ourselves into these boxes and we kind of just stay in one box. And because of the kind of work that I do where I've ended up working with neurologists and astrophysicists and all these weird projects in all these different areas, I kind of wanted to celebrate the fact that we're all so much more multi disciplinary and multi-dimensional than we think and so what better way of doing that than creating a bonkers thinking cap with Mr. Fish and allowing people to explore the many channels that are going on inside say my brain but also ultimately it could be anyone's brain. So we walk into the your alcove here at Sunset House you've got a nice position um, in the west wing very political and we walk into the the room and there are telephones kind of old school british telecom telephones from uh, i guess they'd be public call boxes famous red call boxes dotted around the walls what is what is the what is the the contents of those phones you pick them up you put them to your ear and you hear your voice your reminiscences interviews you've done um but tell us tell us some what we hear um on some of those telephones beating When you pick up those telephones, as you said, these retro listening station booths, which are very important because I love this combination of digital and physical future and retro, and that's very much a theme of the work. So you pick up one of these phones. All these phones are plugged into the thinking cap. That's another layer maybe we'll get into. But you pick up a phone and you listen to journal entries between 11 and 19 which represents the hippocampus which is where you encode memory or you pick up 
another phone and it's music and it's in the limbic system and maybe it's the collaborations I've done with Linda Perry or the first demo I did when I was eight or nine, tape cassette, or it's unreleased new music. You pick up another one and it's the Wernix area and it's conversations with Fred Armisen or Henry Rollins or Brian Eno or Shirley Manson. And the idea is, or memory, another phone is the memory channel. the rooftops we are sitting on the that is a huge drop okay it may not look it but it is huge it's all the home movies i've had you know found over the years or sounds is all the things that imprinted like the shipping forecast or the bbc love it or you know, the, obviously tubes, mind the gap. It's like a whole collection of different sounds that have been encoded in your memory. Really, it's also about imprinting. You know, the project is called Imprinting. And it's this look at all of the stuff that goes in deep and stays with us and becomes a part of who we are, which I fear we're losing in the digital era because everything's hitting us at this same frequency. Nothing's really going in deep enough to imprint. So it's also very much a celebration of all these different areas of the brain or areas of the work or the exploration that have gone in, you know, and really become a part of, you know, sort of not even your identity, but like how you move through the world, you know, and what's important to you. There's the, there is music that moves people. There's a great tune that you tap your foot to and dance to. There are wonderful lyrics that inspire people, that draw tears. And then there's music that hits a different part of your brain that you, you perhaps can't explain why you like it. And you've been very interested in this throughout your career, BT. You've done stuff, research into and worked with dementia charities, I guess, and dementia research about the power of music to kind of hit a hidden part of the brain and unlock people's memories and feelings and happiness hopefully as well. So about 10 years ago I started a project called Music for Dementia um, which was a research project looking at music, actually unfamiliar music and the power of that for people living with Alzheimer's or dementia. Music that was familiar had already been tested and that there was very strong evidence that that could pull someone out of a catatonic like state but people hadn't tested music for music's sake that wasn't triggering a memory. So when we did this research project and we were getting the same results, it wasn't about saying new music is better, it's about saying if you take memory out of the equation and music is still transforming people from nonverbal to verbal, then actually it's the power of music as opposed to the power of memory that is really you know, being kind of celebrated or being illuminated in, in that respect. So from that, I started working with these neuroscientists from Stanford and all these different very smart people that were then incorporating the work into their trials. That work then became this charity, Music for Dementia, which is now actively getting music in all care homes in the UK. And so through that and my understanding of 
you know, the power of music and art and nature for us as human beings. Literally, music imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience, and it activates every part of the brain. And just um, finally, we've talked about this, the concepts, and we've listened to some of the words and music. The, what about the physical artifact? Because the, these telephones, they loop up with old-school fibrous telephone wires up into the ceiling, and they duck back down again. And there's a glass vitrine at the end of the, the room with this handsome... Slightly frightening. I, I kind of want to put it on, but I don't know whether it, what it's going to do to my brain. Um, tell us about that, because this is a this is a sort of a thinking cap, I suppose. But talk us through that. What's that? Yeah, I'd love to see if anyone else has a thinking cap. Yeah. So I'm wearing mine. <laughs> I I felt like you know, of course, if you're going to take someone inside the artist's brain, you got to create a thinking cap. I'd made this musical jacket with the tailor who dressed Barry Hendrix, Jagger, Mr. Fish. You were there at the launch of that. That wonderful property in just off Marlborough High Street, or Baker Street, isn't it? 34 Montague Square. Yeah. So it was the home of Lennon, Yoko, McCartney, Ringo. Um, Hend- you want to touch the walls and absorb some of the ether. Totally. So I, Mr. Fish and I had already made this musical jacket together. So I was like, okay, we need a thinking cap to also, I should say, all of the data that you're hearing via those telephone stations is encoded in glass, preserved for 10,000 years as this new, very ecological glass storage management system or you know, breakthrough. And so the idea was to create something that was totally bonkers, that was both familiar, you know, in terms of the aviation caps, but also like nothing you'd ever seen. It's made out of vinyl shavings and space rocks, and it has all these weird things that I love kind of encrusted within it. Um, And yeah, it is this thinking cap. And so the audio is contained within the cap that you're then listening to. And I w- will say that it's about 500 hours worth of audio that I've edited to create those stations. So the idea is that no one would ever hear the same thing twice. Beautiful. Thank you, BT Wolf, for inviting us. I think you invited us inside your head. Thanks very much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Please don't judge what you find in there. <laughs> but I won't let you go. B.G. Wolf inviting us all inside her head, which on the day was clothed in a green beanie. And imprinting is part of the London Design Biennale and it's on Somerset House until the 25th of June. Do get down there. And finally on today's show, American musician Esperanza Spaulding. She's been the recipient of no less than five Grammy Awards. The most recent of these wins was for her eighth studio album, Songwrites Apothecary Lab, made up of pieces of music written and recorded in Spaulding's travelling music laboratory in collaboration with musicians, researchers and practitioners. This year, she released the captivating album Alive at the Village Vanguard, alongside composer Fred Hirsch. Spaulding combines creating music with her stewardship of her sanctuary and restorative arts lab, serving artists of colour in her native Portland. Here she is in conversation with Monocle's Carolina Abbott-Galvao, discussing what restorative art means to her. Body is your bell sounding through the heavy pulley, ringing out a from the belly of 
expression of restorative art could be, okay, my backyard is mainly grass and some invasive weeds, but it's a space that I have some agency. So maybe I can learn how in the little time that I'm here renting or quote unquote owning, maybe I can use my creativity, my vision to learn about how this little patch of grass could be rewilded. It could become habitat for, for pollinators, you know, could I can bring back plants that are native to this region and help heal the microbe health of the soil, support other native plants and thriving here, other make it a little habitat for other critters and creatures. And that act, you first you think, oh yeah, that's gonna be a nice thing to do to restore this little patch of earth, but it's restorative to you as well, you know, because the things that you end up learning about and encountering when you delve into a restorative art project like that, it restores it restores so much to you. If nothing else, just the relationship putting your hands in the ground <laughs> or like carving out time each day to tend the land of a place that, that you live, you know? So that's one expression of it. You know, restorative art could be us having a songwrites apothecary lab housed yeah. there. You know, it's like a campus where we can be in that practice. So some of what the Sunrise Apothecary Lab offers are these invitations to reconnect with our innate capacity to heal with music, you know, to apply music as an aid in our restoration, you know, whether that's of a good sleeping schedule or, of, you know, feeling more courageous or capable when it comes time to communicate boundaries, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or just a way to soothe my nervous system after I had an intense conversation at work. You yeah. know, that to me, having a, being reminded of getting access to the tools that are innate in every human being to, to self-regulate, self-soothe, self-restore with music is an expression of restorative art. Mm -hmm. And I, even the, the process of crafting the environment that will support and sustain that research work and practice is an expression of restorative art as well. Restorative art can be gathering to talk heart to heart with other Black folks about the traumas and the dreams that live in us around our relationship to land mm -hmm. and to dare to touch into the really sore hot spots of our relationships to land in multiple directions, including maybe some of our unconscious settler aspirations <laughs> of security coming through the quote unquote ownership and appropriation of lands that were nobody's right to sell and plant our ancestors on in the first place, you know? So that is a, to me, having those conversations going into the shadows and the weeds and the ouch and the hope of those yeah. conversations is a restorative art practice as well, you know? That's super insightful and thank you for that. And um, yeah, you mentioned Songwrites Apothecary Lab and you know, that's such an amazing album. It sort of like redefines what like the process of making an album can even be. And, and it's so interesting. And I mean, yeah, I was just gonna ask you a bit about that, you know, that sort of a project that brought together 
people from so many different disciplines and you know yeah it was such such an interesting process I mean going into that why was that important to you I guess yeah thanks for asking about it It, and it's ongoing you know I with the opera and with the really kind of wading waist deep into this early stage of the developing or bringing forth the sanctuary it's been kind of on a back burner I guess but actually starting this summer and moving into next year it'll be something that I really um, prioritize again it's like so infinite you know I mean it's truly so it's like truly infinite because there's all the time ahead of us you know what I mean that we're 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 like a, a chapter in as well but I was introduced to the kind of clinical recognition of music as a potent tool to support restoration, maybe in like 2015 or something. And it started lighting up all these other innate knowings of the ways that I turn into music or the way that I've used music and seen it being used. And I started to feel so excited about the possibilities of for what musicians could could work with you know and then it also started highlighting how sloppy I felt as a musician so I'm like whoa if this is how powerful this stuff is (laughs) I'm working with it with so little awareness of what these elements are actually doing you know even if it's just in a casual schmasual song context like it's Mm. powerful stuff you know it's Mm. always powerful stuff and I think I was kind of noticing a longing to be just more aware and more accountable, held more accountable in the way that I was working so with this powerful stuff called music. So the 12 Little Spells was like my first foray into integrating some of the techniques and tools that I was exploring um, through like, I guess you could say healing arts or restorative arts, mm. but I was clearly framing it like, this is my exploration, you know, like I'm, I'm exploring this and I'm sharing what came through, what came up. Yeah, and yeah. and from that project, I promised that I would. I promised that I would, you know, moving forward, work in concert with other more experienced practitioners, you mm-hmm. know, and so uh, and through like the end of twenty nineteen, I started kind of like plotting out what that might look like, and then in February I started reaching out to some folks of twenty twenty. Like, hey, would you join me? Like, would you be on this council? Like, I want to, I want to invite some people to like really help me. I want to learn. I want to learn with yeah. you, you know. And then that the pandemic happened, so it kind of turned into, kind of turned into this very broad, like little collection of people who, yeah. who each were coming from a different area of expertise. And then, and then many of my former songwriting students in this this lab I was teaching at Harvard wanted to get involved so it yeah. kind of organically moved into this combination of like a study lab slash research collaboration lab it, it really kind of kept growing out of just the way we were practicing the best practice going yeah yeah and then and so that's where we are and it's still happening and just to be honest you know to sustain us being able to have time with each other, I had to make a record, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Our goal is not to make albums, right? Our goal is to really just cultivate a good practice with one another where we can work constructively together and help each other grow across these fields and, and areas of expertise. 
and make the best of that available to other people who want to try it and also make things that help us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and it's, like I said, it's ongoing. We'll be doing more with that in the summer. We're doing a little bit of it at North Sea and we're gonna keep going. Down through the years, the loneliest swing and playing Ruby The almighty Esperanza Spaulding there. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Tomas Lewis, Carolina Abbott-Galval and all of our guests this week. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. (laughs) 